0: Well take your copy of god 's Word and turn with me to Matthew chapter five. I remind you, um, if you haven 't seen it i 'm encouraging uh, us as a body to take the next three months of the summer and read through the New Testament. Um, if you divide uh, the whole of the New Testament over these ninety two days of June, July, and August, you can read all Uh, from Matthew to Revelation, in roughly one to two two chapters a day. Uh, So on our website, you can find the reading plan. I'm putting it out uh, on social media. I think there's still some little brochures back there. Listen, if you haven't started, start today. Uh, Matthew uh, 14 and 15, I think, is a reading for today. Jump in, Matthew 14 and 15, and go on to the end. Uh, It'll be a blessing to you. We're going to pick up this morning, reading through the Beatitudes with Matthew chapter 5, verse 2. And the sermon text will focus on verse 7. So this is God's word for God's people. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil on my account against you. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. For these words that you've given to us through the lord jesus christ we confess that these are the infallible and inerrant word of god they are without flaw in their original documents thank you father what a grace as we reflect now on your mercy to us help us to have an accurate understanding so that we might be merciful people we ask that your spirit would work in us to compel us to mercy. We ask it in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. You've probably gotten used to being tested in various ways over the past few months, haven't you? Uh, Many of you have been tested for COVID, probably, maybe more than one time, and found it to be very pleasant. Uh, If you go and visit someone or go to certain events, you have to stand in a line to have your temperature taken. Um, You've been tested. And this is to be an indication of your well-being. If you are a safe person to be around. Can we gauge your spiritual health In a similar way. How are you spiritually? Specifically, are you a member of God's kingdom? Are you in the kingdom? Is it well with you? That's what these Beatitudes you see are helping us to do. Jesus is giving us a description of the citizens of his kingdom. What do they look like? But not just what is the veneer that they have on the outside. What do their hearts look like? And guess what? The only thing that can tell you the condition of your heart is you working in tandem with the Holy Spirit. There isn't a thermometer. There isn't a nasal swab, thankfully. It is only the work of the Spirit. The first thing that Jesus instructs you to do then is look at yourself. Consider yourself. Look at your heart. In the middle of the 19th century, certain American evangelists, you think about the advent of the tent meeting and revival meetings. They introduced certain ways of thinking about becoming a Christian. These things are still with us today. You think about praying a prayer, walking down an aisle to receive Christ into your heart. You've got Charles Finney to thank for that. He was a Presbyterian. The mercy seat or anxious bench was introduced where men and women congregants would come and they would sit in the middle and they would go on and on and on singing until that last little boy would finally come forward and give himself to Christ. One great problem is that it taught us to think of becoming a Christian in terms of taking some action. Becoming a Christian described as praying the sinner's prayer or walking the aisle. The problem is you don't find any of this in the Bible. The second great problem with this bad theology is that it has trained folks to think of Christianity as something that you did back there. When asked if you are a Christian, you look back on something you did rather than on someone you are and thinking about the content of your character today. You say, I became a Christian rather than I am a Christian. If you think this way, this is a big problem. Jesus is teaching you to look at who you are right now. His sermon in Matthew 5 to 7 including these beatitudes, it is designed to search the nature of your heart here and now and as we come before them now we're we're hoping by God's grace to sit here as honest people. To say, yes, put it in my nose. I want to know the truth. Who am I? Am I sick? Let me suggest to you that if you are not leaving these sermons with at least some conviction, if you're not leaving these sermons with at least some conviction, and recognition of of a need to repent in some area, things are probably not well within Because I assure you that as I study these passages, I sense the need to repent. As we take this assessment today, then what Christ is compelling us to understand is that Christian folk have a disposition of mercy. Christian folk have a disposition of mercy that leads to acts of mercy which together give us the comfort of future mercy. We have a disposition of mercy that leads to acts of mercy which together give the comfort of future mercy. Thinking first of all then, the Christian, uh, those who have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit have a disposition of mercy. We learn this mercy from Christ Himself. As As you look at this term, mercy, we often have a definition that we've come to on our own or that we've taught and that is good. As we look at the gospels, this term mercy is most often used with reference to Christ in his acts of healing. The gospels use mercy in each of Christ's acts of healing. In Matthew chapter 9 verse 27 there's a request for healing from uh, blindness, and a, a man comes to him, and he cries out to him, and he said, "Son of David, I beg you for mercy." We see this over and over in Matthew fifteen twenty-two, the request for relief from a demon, "Have mercy on me." Matthew seventeen fifteen, the request for healing from seizures, Lord. Have mercy on me. Chapter 20, verse 31. The request for healing again from blindness. And in each of these occasions, Christ is appealed to as a king, Son of David, if you will, have mercy on me. Take away my demon. Take away my seizures. Take away my blindness. We learn mercy then from Christ. In each of those instances where Christ was asked for mercy as a king, He gave it. Christ is a merciful king. And in chapter 23, verse 23, He looked at the Pharisees and He said to them, woe to you because you neglect the weightier matters of the law. Justice and mercy. And he instructs us in chapter 12, verse 7, that God desires mercy, not sacrifice. How, though, does a Christian have a disposition of mercy? How do we have this inner sort of inclination to be merciful to others in looking at Christ and understanding what He taught? Let me give you three things quickly. How do we have this disposition? Well, one, we believe that hell is a real place. Hell is a real place. When we look at the story of Lazarus and the rich man, and the rich man being assigned to this place of eternal torment, a place where he had real physical torment, and we recognize the fact that people, real people, are going to a real people of torment, we are enabled then to have mercy. Going hand in hand to this, that Christians have a disposition of mercy because we understand the corruption of sin in humanity. This is the ultimate problem that is sending men to hell. Imagine a .ER. nurses have to deal with probably some of the filthiest situations known to man, don't you think? Imagine an .ER. nurse who complains the bleeding man is making her floor dirty. How dare he? The .ER. nurse ignores the filth because he or she recognizes the main problem. It, we're not concerned about the filthiness of the floor right now. We're, we're uh, concerned with addressing the real problem, which is a gunshot wound or a stabbing. As Christians, we recognize that the real problem for humanity is not economics or politics. It's sin. Sin is the corrupting problem. Men are sick. And they are dying and going to hell. And when we look upon humanity in those terms, we're enabled to look upon them with mercy. They need, men need mercy. We have, lastly, a disposition of mercy you do because you recognize what you deserve. This is fundamental. Paul said in Philippians 2 Have this mind in yourselves, which also was in Christ, that he gave himself up for you. Considered it not robbery, he came in the form of a man. We reflect on the mercy of God. And reflecting on the mercy of God, as Thomas Watson said, his darling attribute. God exercises mercy upon you, not because it's some sort of drudgery. He's not a father handing out gas money again. God delights in his mercy, he loves to show mercy. And we recognize that we are recipients of that mercy. Therefore, we have a disposition of mercy, recognizing hell is real. Sin is the problem of man. And we are recipients of God's mercy. Our natural tendency, though, is not to have mercy toward other people or pity, as it might be said. It is self-pity. Our natural tendency is self-pity. We are more interested in our own ills than we are in the ills of others. Our, your natural response is to think of how badly you've got it. You rarely look at others' circumstance with eyes of grace and pity. Let me ask you this. We reflected on the commandment this morning. Do you delight In the harm of others? You say, well, surely not. Of course I don't. But I could mention names to you. Dr. Fauci, Adolf Hitler. What kind of sentiments do these names evoke? Do you delight in the harm of others? Do you love to see other men pulled over on the side of the highway and getting a ticket, but you plead for mercy when it's you? What are your thoughts toward the man who burned the train depot? Have you prayed for him? Have you sought the Lord's mercy in his behalf? Have you prayed for his salvation? It's not wrong to hope for justice. A godly society is one in which justice is carried out fully and quickly. Remember, though, that God delights in mercy, He loves mercy. He does not even take delight, we learn from Ezekiel 18, in the death of the wicked. Do you? If God does not delight in it, how much less should we? Do you see, this is the disposition of mercy, hoping for the good of my fellow man, not longing for his harm, and hoping for and praying for his ultimate good, which is reconciliation to the Father through Christ. Christians have a disposition of mercy. That is, longing for the good of others. But we also have a motivation of mercy. Early on I said we have this sort of uh, knee-jerk definition of what mercy is. And we'll often think of mercy in tandem with grace, don't we? And we'll think uh, grace is unmerited favor or God giving me what I don't deserve. Mercy then, on the other hand, is God not giving me what I do deserve. It is Him restraining judgment from me. Instead of giving me what I deserve, He has given me what Christ deserves. The only problem I see with this is that it makes mercy a passive idea instead of an active one. And whenever we see the mercy displayed or described in the Bible, it is always active. Mercy is an active thing. We're doing something. It motivates to action. Jesus uses the term to refer to giving to the needs of others. Turn your page to chapter 6, verse 24. no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other yet jesus here is building on a teaching of mercy reminding us that those who are merciful give they don't heap up merely for themselves in the book of Acts, the term mercy is used seven times. Each of those seven times it references giving to the poor. It is doing works of mercy. You think of the picture of Dorcas. Look with me at Acts chapter 9, verse 36. Now, there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was, look at this, full of good works, and do you notice this? Acts of charity. Or we could translate it acts of mercy. Paul here, or Luke, is noticing this, this woman who is a disciple, and her mercy is demonstrated in acts. It is a doing. It's not merely a, a passive thing or Turn also with me to James chapter 2. Here perhaps is the ultimate indictment. Listen to what James says in verses 14 and following. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, I'll pray for you. Lifting up prayers. Sending prayers your way. If someone says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself that does not have works is dead. In other words, we're being instructed here that lively and active faith will result in what? Acts of mercy, charity, giving. Uh, Christ has given us the diaconal office, hasn't he? He, We set it down in Acts chapter 6. We call this an office of sympathy and service. These are men whom God intends will model to the church... What it means to minister to the sick. To the friendless. And to any who may be in distress. When For the sick and the friendless. Those who are in distress. The, the, the uh, alert goes up for the deacons in our, in our church. This is their office. They model this to us. This is the design of God. Of mercy in action. Mercy is not just a passive idea. There are some who profess to be Christian and yet they practice survival of the fittest. Some who profess to be Christian and yet practice karma. He gets what he deserves. And by golly, the faster he gets it, the better, in my opinion. Or we're simply satisfied to say, we all get what we deserve. Well, what about you? Will you get what you deserve? Let me ask you, do you give faithfully to the ministries of the church? Do you do so with joy? Celebrating every time you give? Because here, we accumulate a treasury to give to the world. Especially to support the brothers and sisters in Christ. So that, what, imagine our church and the deacons having so much that they are wondering, being creative in how they use the monies of the church. Think of Israel when they gave to the construction of the temple, and Moses had to say, Stop giving. Many good organizations vie for your cash. What an amazing thing would it be if we all looked first to the financial welfare of this church. To say, how can we give? How can New Covenant be engaged in mercy ministry in our community? Let's challenge the deacons to figure out what they're going to do with all this money. Let me challenge our children as well to show mercy to one another. I'm sure one of you or two of you know uh, certain perhaps schoolmates who are not looked well upon in school and you you join in or you're tempted to join in, aren't you, at at pointing at them and saying, ha, 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 I, I had those in my day. And sadly, I joined in on some of that. But that is a sin. It is one that we should repent of. Christ is calling you to be merciful. To have pity on those. To help your brothers and sisters rather than get them into trouble to come to their aid. When you see that a chore is undone, perhaps to take it on yourself and do it. This is mercy. We see then that Christians have an inner inner disposition to mercy they have an action in mercy but then we're lastly shown in this text going back to Matthew chapter 5 or 7 that those who are merciful will receive mercy we have in this a promise of mercy We note from this that God who is promising to be merciful to us is showing us something. He will not change. The God who is merciful to you today will be merciful in the age to come. He will go on delighting in His mercy. And those who are merciful now are assured of mercy in the life to come. These beatitudes are kind of like an exam review, aren't they? Some of you remember your mom asking, didn't your teacher go over all the questions on the exam the day before? Weren't you listening? Jesus here is giving you the opportunity to evaluate your own standing. Are you a merciful person? He reminds you that you will Not show mercy if you have not truly received it. Do you see how it circles back upon itself? They have received mercy, therefore they are merciful people and they will go on receiving mercy in the age which is to come. God is making you a promise. He will not change. I think a question for us this morning though, is how does a 21st century christian cultivate mercy how does a 21st century christian cultivate mercy we live in a society that tends to pervert mercy communism and socialism recognize the image of god but they pervert mercy do you see in making it a forced thing these systems make mercy a real challenge for christians we can become hardened toward the poor and we're even tempted to join in in calling them less fortunate As though luck and chance and good fortune are the governors of society. Surely Christ did not foresee these circumstances, did he? When he's calling on his people to be merciful, would he not have taught this beatitude to Hebrews in slavery? would He have not called His people to show mercy to Egypt? I assure you, He would. And so as Christian folk, we have to be alert to these things. When you watch the news or you're active on social media, many of these things are trying to harden real mercy. To harden you against those parts of society, to harden you to the poor, to harden you to people who are in real need, to have an, an attitude of skepticism toward all, and to close your fist around your resources. Christ is calling you to be alert to this, not to allow your heart to be hardened. Ask Him to soften your heart, especially as you give to the church and the ministries of the church which advance the Gospels. But to those of you who find yourself with a disposition and a motivation to mercy, no matter how weak it may seem, Christ would comfort you with these words, you will receive mercy. Christian folk have a disposition of mercy which leads to acts of mercy, which together give the comfort of future mercy. This morning we look at the elements of bread and wine, or juice in our case, and we remember that Jesus gave these to us. These elements are visible depictions of mercy. They are given to an unworthy people. They are a gift of God's grace designed to build up your faith as you partake of them in faith. They remind us of the great mercy of God which He has had on every individual Christian. And they are displayed before you as an example of mercy which you can never hope to replicate. But you do hope to illustrate in your own life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of mercy. We thank you, Father, that your mercy is not something that we have because we deserve it. It is not something that we have because we pleaded long enough and hard enough and loud enough to receive. But we have mercy because you are a merciful God. You are a good God. Your character is good, you are the very essence of goodness. And you've given to us mercy because of it. Help us, Father, to be a merciful people. To be a people who delight in the good of others. We delight to see others do well. And even give sacrificially of ourselves, of our resources, to bring about the good of others. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.